I sit in this chair every Sunday. It's this purple chair that my life changed. It was in this chair that I found God. It's in this chair that I found hope, love, and family. Cornerstone made a place for me. They made room for me. And now it's my turn to make room for someone else so that they can experience God in their own purple chair. Hey, good morning, Cornerstone. Hey, three of you are awake. All right. Uh, We are in a conversation right now that we're calling Purple Chairs. And it's really uh, just a conversation about what do we do now that the Purple Chairs are filling up. And if you were here last week, you heard in the conversation, we said, man, the thing that's so cool about what God is doing around here is that we have tons of purple chair stories. In other words, every person who sits in a purple chair on Sunday is a story about what God is doing in this place. And it's just exciting when you start listening and unpacking those. And you think about the idea that we fill these purple chairs up multiple, multiple, multiple times every single Sunday. And you go, man, there are scads of purple chairs stories going on in this place, but what we've come to know and understand is we've got plenty of purple chair stories. We just don't have enough purple chairs. And I know in a service like this or at five o'clock, you look around, you go, well, hey, wait a minute, Lynn. I mean, I can see some empty seats. Don't we have a little bit of room to go? You're asking the wrong question. A better question is why do we have a service at 1155? And why do we have a service at five o'clock? And the answer is, and if you haven't been here uh, in the earlier parts of the morning, you do, haven't experienced it, but the last two services that we just did in, in here, uh, literally this room was packed. There was not a seat to find. We were taking husbands and wives and dividing them up and saying, you sit here and you sit over here. And we were sending people into overflow. And if you and I know that it'll take about 32 months for us to expand this auditorium, how full do you think these seats at the present rate of growth are going to be before we can ever tackle this problem together? And the answer is we'll probably be adding more services at less opportune times. So we're having the con- we're saying, look, 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 we've got plenty of purple chair stories. We just don't have enough purple chairs. Here's what we've asked you to do, okay? Uh, we've said to you, would you please, please, please engage with us in doing devotions and praying for the next uh, 14 days. We actually asked you last week, but we've got 14 days left. Let me, let me tell you why we've asked you to do that. When you and I get to important life moments, when we're getting ready to make major decisions, one of the mistakes we do is we look at our fingers and we go, well, no, hey, that adds up. Yeah, well, of course I'll take that job in Utah. I mean, it's a pay raise and I've been, I've been looking forward to management and this is an easy step up corporately. I mean, why, why would you not? I mean, this is just so obvious what I was thinking and what I was planning for. And I will tell you that often you and I make some of our worst decisions because they add up. And don't get me wrong, I, I, I'm a thinker. I'm a person who wants to be able to figure it out and, and get each step in line. But here's what I have discovered on this journey with Jesus Christ. And that is that sometimes what makes absolute sense to me in human perspective is not what God was intending or wanting all along. And that the most powerful thing that you and I can do in moments when we think it adds up and when it makes sense and when we got major life decisions is in the midst of trying to think it through, in the midst of planning it out, to stop in prayer and say, God, whoa, 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 before I land this decision, before I decide something really big in my life, 
I'm going to give you the opportunity to speak into this, to steer my heart a different direction, to say something to me I wouldn't have considered. Because guys, let's just be honest. Sometimes following God does not add up on our fingers and doesn't make sense at first glance. And you and I, in a pivotal moment right now where we're deciding the future of our church and the future of kind of who we're going to be and what we're going to do with our kids and how we're going to minister in this place, of all times, would we not bathe this in prayer? And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to beg you to do. I want you to, I'm going to ask you to do these devotionals. Even if you haven't started them yet, you can jump in. They're all dated. It's only 14 more days. And, and guys, I'm doing them and, and I'm telling you, you can get them done in three minutes and I'm a slow reader. Okay. So you can get them done in about three minutes. And then here's what I'm going to ask you to do. We're going to ask you every single day to say, God, I'm just praying. I'm asking you to speak to me about what I should do, what, what me and mine should do in a moment like this. And then when you pray and when God speaks to your heart, will you simply obey whatever it is that God says? Who cares about whatever percentages I talk to you about? Who cares about what's on a commitment? Who cares? Would you be willing to pray and then simply obey whatever it is that God would lay on your heart? Just do that. Because if you'll do that, we'll be okay at the end of the day. So if you're here and you don't have one of these devotionally, yes, the, the ushers are going to hate me for this. If you don't have one yet, would you raise your hand? I'm going to have them run to you and give you one right now. Okay? If you don't have one, raise your hand. Keep it up while they're bringing it, and we'll get one to you. Now, here's the deal. Uh, we're going to talk the next couple weeks uh, from the book of the Bible called Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is the story of a guy who is living in exile. Jerusalem's been conquered. He's been taken off as a slave. And he's going to hear about the fact that the walls back in Jerusalem have been torn down. And his heart is going to break. And in the midst of that, he's going to say, I have to do something about this. And he's going to go back to build the walls there in Jerusalem. So if you notice, we've got all these big piles of rubble. They're supposed to be kind of the broken down walls and, and the start of a wall. And, and here's what we're going to do in 14 days. In 14 days, you and I are going to make pledges together. And we're going to ask you in the service to get up out of your seat. You're going to walk forward where you're going to exchange your pledge for a brick. And then you're going to take your brick and we're going to place it in the wall. We're going to build the wall together. And if we can move all these bricks, then we'll have built the wall. And we're going to take on that brick and put your family name on it. And then when the building project's done and they get ready to put in the sidewalks, you're going to bring your brick back and we're going to place that brick in the sidewalk outside. And guys, look, look, look. Not so that we can brag. So that you and I can set a legacy. So that you and I can walk our children over to our family brick and say, this is why we missed vacation. This is why we sacrificed. So that we could join in what God was doing in our church. And your family was part of it. And we're going to build legacy together. We're going to build a remembrance because there's going to be a day when God is going to invite our children to something big. And you and I want to have instilled in them already the courage that says, when God says step out, the Smith family steps out. And I know this because I got a brick that tells me so.
Okay? And we're going to create legacy together. So here's the other part of it. And don't get confused about the two. There's, there's a packet you should have gotten when you came in today. And it's kind of wrapped in cellophane. This packet has just some general information about what we're trying to do together. But the important part is there's a pledge card in here. And on April the 13th, two weeks from now, we're going to bring those pledge cards back. We're going to walk them to the front. We're going to exchange them for a brick. And we're going to do some serious wall building together as a church. Okay? So if you did not by any chance get one of these, get one on your way out. Because you need to be praying over that card. And what God's going to have your family do on the 13th. Okay? All right. All right, grab your Bibles with me if you would. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump into the biggest building project ever recorded in Scripture. And we're going to look at the life of a guy by the name of Nehemiah. And we're going to simply ask this question. Why did he get involved? Why did he do this? Because this should be honest. Let's be honest. Anytime we get to a moment like this as a church, one of the first questions you and I ask is, well, well, why should I? I mean, I've already got a purple chair. I've already figured out how to come on a Sunday, and this crowd's at 11.55, or maybe you're at the 5 o'clock hour, and you're going, hey, I've already, there's already, there's still room in my room. I can park relatively close to the buildings. Why would I care about a building project? What, what's in it for me? If I live sacrificially for the next 36 months, what, why would I do that? Did you know I know Christians who when their church does a building project, they leave the church until the building is done and until everybody else sacrifices for them and then they come back to use the buildings they didn't build. And I get it. I get it because, you know, hey, if, if, if my kids are already grown up and I don't need the children's building, and what's in it for me? And we're going to try to answer the question together today that says, why would you? Why would I? Somebody who's already got a purple chair and my kids are already fitting in the classroom over there, why would we build a building? So grab your Bibles. It's the book of Nehemiah. If you're not real familiar this morning... Uh, and you want to find this book in Nehemiah, go to the very front of your Bible. Start working to the right. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1st Chronicle, 1st Kings, 2nd Kings, 1st Chronicles, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. I, I just did that so you'd had to learn your Bible a little bit. Actually, the easiest way is if you just go to the middle of your Bible, work to the left a couple books. Nehemiah is right there. Middle of your Bible, book of Psalms, work to the left. You'll find it. It's a couple books away. Nehemiah chapter 1. Let me give you a little bit of background what's happening in the moment. Israel had fallen away from God. They started worshiping the gods of Babylon. And God says, look, okay, look. If you're willing to exchange me for a little pottery calf or, or, or a little, a little stone ground bird, and, and if you're willing to worship idols instead of worshiping the true God, if you really like the gods of Babylon so much, then how about if I let Babylon come down, conquer you, and they can be your masters? And the reality is in this moment that, that Israel is living in a moment of discipline by God. 
You like the Babylonians so much, serve the Babylonians. And as the Babylonians came down to conquer, they dragged away all the treasure, all the resources of Israel, leaving behind older women, children who were too young and too small and too frail to make the trip, the crippled and the weak and the sickly. And they leave that remnant back in Israel. They take everything else with them. And the guy we're going to look at today is a guy by the name of Nehemiah. He's been taken captive uh, into Babylon. So here we go. It's Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Here we go. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah, came from Israel, with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish women, all, you know, the, the leftovers who were left there in Israel, that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Now guys, here's the deal. The only defense you had as a city, the only way to keep marauders from coming in and looting the town were your walls. They were your front line of defense. And now the people, the remnant that are left, live in constant terror that at any point they can be invaded and what the Babylons did not succeed in doing and finish will be done. And they are weak and they are exposed. Verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And if you actually read the rest of chapter 1, Nehemiah has a remarkable prayer. And you may want to go home today and just spend some time reading because it is an absolutely powerful prayer of confession to say, God, look, our people have messed up, but we need your help. Jump with me down to verse 11. O Lord, this is him finishing the prayer. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And then he tells you which man. I was the cupbearer to the king. So get the moment. Here is Nehemiah. He hears about what's happened in Israel, that the walls have been torn down, the gates have been burned, and immediately he weeps. And something in his heart says, I've, I've got to do something. I, I can't stay where I am, do what I'm doing, and not respond to the moment. Now, but guys, think about this. Nehemiah, Nehemiah has nothing at stake. Matter of fact, Nehemiah has nothing to gain in this moment. He's living in Babylon in the palace of the king. He's the cupbearer to the king, which simply means this, that whenever the king was getting ready to have a drink, Nehemiah had to take a sip first just to make sure there was no poison in it. So a pretty good job, it just didn't have much life expectancy. 
But here's the deal. He's living great. I guarantee you the type of clothes that he's wearing, the apartment that he's living in right now, the type of food that he gets to eat are an absolute upgrade to any life that he experienced when he was back in Israel. Who cares? Who cares that the walls are... I mean, that doesn't have anything to do with him. He's living in the king's palace. He's not in any imminent danger. There's nothing at stake for him. And yet there is something that moves the moment, moves the heart of Nehemiah. And he says, man, I cannot possibly sit still. I can't possibly not do something uh, in this moment. Isn't it true... That one of the reasons that we have a hard time understanding Nehemiah's response is because that more often than not, you and I are intuitively selfish. That the first question we ask, and we don't even think about it, it just happens so naturally is, hey, what's in it for me? No, I mean, I mean whoa, 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 whoa. If I, if I do that, what, what do I get back? What, what, what is there for me and mine? What's the payoff? And isn't it true, if we were just simply being honest, that one of the primary filters that we most often don't run our decisions through is, what do I get? If you doubt for a second that you and I, by human nature, are intuitively selfish... Just wait till the next time you're on an airline and the pilot pushes the selfish button. No, 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 no. You've seen this. You've seen this. You're you're coming in for a landing at Sky Harbor Airport. Uh, The stewardess gets on and... And then she says, we we have landed. We are about to pull up to the gate. Please stay in your seat with your seatbelts buckled until the pilot turns off the fastened seatbelt. And you pull up to the gate and all of a sudden you hear, ding! And suddenly, normal, average people leap to their feet like a pack of wolves pushing toward the front. Old ladies are kung fuing men to get by them. All in an effort, you ready? All in an effort to gain seven feet worth of advantage on the rest of the crowd. Because, 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 when they open that door, I'm going to be able to get off this plane 3.2 seconds ahead of you. And even if you're not a plane pusher, isn't it true that the vast, vast, vast majority of our decisions start with what's in it for me? And that that question at its very core is selfish. And that in those moments, you and I look the least like Jesus Christ. Because if you go to the life of Jesus, you can't find me a what's in it for me moment anywhere. The truth is, guys, guys. If Jesus was in it for what was in it for him, he would have never made it to the cross. 
that that is a moment of absolute, you ready? Selflessness in which Jesus says, there is nothing about this that is fun. There is nothing about this that I would choose, but they need this. Isn't it interesting? Think about this. That when Jesus was describing what it was going to be like to follow him, in Matthew chapter 16, here's what Jesus said. If you're thinking about following me, if you're even considering following me, here's what you need to know a disciple does. You ready? They have to deny themselves, take up their cross, follow me. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said, if you ever get serious about me and if you actually want to follow me, the first thing you're going to have to conquer is your selfishness. You're going to have to deny yourself. That the very, ready for this? The very first step of discipleship is shedding selfishness and becoming selfless like your Savior. How many people in this room, you've started attending Cornerstone since we built the building? So in other words, you, you never did church in the old building. You've only come since we built this building. How many people say, I've started staying in Cornerstone since... The, I, I never attended church in that side, in the building, just over here. You realize that's the majority of us? Which means, think about this, if you just raised your hand, you have been the recipient of selflessness. Because, because, you ready for this? All of us that were in that building doing church, we already had a chair. We already had a class for our kids. And when we built your purple chair, we didn't need it. You needed it. And we sacrificed and we gave for you. And if there was ever a group of people who ought to understand the conversation that we're having right now, it ought to be all the new people. All the new people ought to go, man, I am sitting in a chair that somebody else paid for for me. I get this. It's not about what's in it for me. It's about the people who haven't gotten here yet. How many of you in this room were in that building? And you gave to this building project. How many were in that room you gave to this building? Raise your hand. Stand up. Stand up. Thank you, man. Thank you. You, you, you realize who just stood up? You, you realize who just stood up, right? There were single moms who stood up. Who bought a chair for you. There were older couples who stood up who could have said, look, my kids have already moved out. They hate me. My grandkids will never come back. I'm building this for someone else's grandkids. I'm just, you realize they've already modeled for you what you and I need to do. Because they did it on your behalf. And guys, I get it. I get it. I get it. That there are some of us in here and you would say, hey, look, my kids have already moved away. I don't have any children for that graded children's building you're getting ready to do. And look, 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 I'm so mature in Jesus Christ. I mean, I've got so much Jesus dripping on. I don't need any maturity buildings. I, I'm just cooked already. 
I get it. And some of us are going, look, Leland, I've already bought the combat boots, and so the sharp rocks on the on the parking lot, they don't bother me, so I'm good. There's nothing in it for me. I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. Then be a Nehemiah. Be somebody with enough selflessness in your heart that says, this isn't about me, this is about what ought to get done. And I'll go do it. Be a Nehemiah. You go back to the passages. I love verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Why? Why? Why is Nehemiah so moved? Why does Nehemiah give a rip? Why does he care so deeply? I mean, think about this. There is nothing about that wall that's going to benefit him. He's not living in constant danger. And as far as we know, his relatives are all saying, why does he care? You ready? Because God cares. Because he knows that God's heart is heartbroken. That the people of God are living in a city of rubble that's forever indefensible and at risk. And he knows that it breaks the heart of God. And guys, here's what you need to get. Ready? When you love somebody, you care about what they care about. And you love what they love. If you love somebody. Some of you know my story and You know, there's a young preacher boy. I had an older mentor who took me under his arm and just poured into my life. I mean, hours upon hours. I can't tell you how many cups of coffee we drank together talking about ministry. I can't tell you how many hard situations where I had made a mistake and this guy had the grace to step into my life and help me figure it out. And I will tell you that every leadership decision I make at Cornerstone, I make standing on the shoulders of George Bedlian. And the investment that he made in my life. And somebody, some of you know the other part of the story is that George eventually came and served on staff here at Cornerstone. So think about this. My mentor came and served on my staff and allowed me to be his pastor. And then it came time for George to retire. And he moved back to Yakaipa. And it became his next assignment in life to take care of his wife, Novella, whose health was failing. Her kidneys were shutting down and she was having to do dialysis three times a week and her eyes had gotten uh, clouded over. She couldn't hardly see anything in front of her and she was just frail. And I will tell you that in the last seven years, George has done things for Novella that you and I pray that we never have to do for our spouse. That's been his assignment. And I would take trips. I'd, I'd hop on a plane. I'd drive over to see my friend. To spend time with them. And guys, guys, you gotta, you gotta hear, hear this part of the story from my heart. 
I didn't go to see Novella. I went to see George. He was the guy who had invested. I mean, I love Novella, and but I didn't have that same relationship with her. George was the one who spent countless hours, and so I would go to California to spend time with George. I'd get there. And it would become so obvious that even though I had traveled that long distance to be with George, that George's heart was that I would spend time with Novella because she'd been isolated in her sickness and alone with just him. And out of absolute love for George, often I would spend the majority of my time there in California talking with Novella because, because, because. When you love someone... You love what they love. Novella died a couple weeks ago. And I hopped again in a car and drove over to California in a schedule that was insane. Not for Novella. To be with my friend George as he mourned the love of his life passing. Because, 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 when you love somebody, you love what they love. Every dad in this room who has a daughter, you know what I'm talking about. Because there's been a moment that your little daughter has walked up with her dolly and said, Daddy, you hold her. And suddenly you find yourself going, oh, how was your day? Oh, pretty good. And grown men holding dolls and talk. Why? Why? Because when you love someone, you love what they love. Which brings you and me to an interesting question. What is God love? See, if you and I say that we love God, what does God love? And I can tell you that the answer is reasonably simple. God loves lost people. God loves people who are far away from Jesus and haven't figured this thing out yet. He loves them so much. Are you ready for this? He loves you and me. He, he loves lost people so much that if you were the only person in the history of all eternity who would have ever accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, he would have sent Jesus to the cross just as quick. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves your neighbor and your co-worker and your aunt and uncle who haven't made it to this room yet. God loves seeing Christians grow up. He loves, he loves watching baby Christians take step after step in maturity and each time becoming that much more like Jesus Christ to the point where when people meet us, they think they met Jesus because there's so much of Jesus on us and so little of us on us. That Jesus' presence is unmistakable in our maturity. God loves people who are far from him, and he loves people who grow. So let me ask you a question. How much do you love people who are far from Jesus? 
How concerned are you about the rest of this room growing up to be like Jesus Christ? Because, guys, let me just say this. It is impossible to love God and not love what he loves. It's why Nehemiah leaves the palace to go build a brick wall. Because God loves his children and wanted to see them safe. It's interesting because what Nehemiah does next, his response is going to be risky. It's going to cost a lot. And guys, you just need to hear me say this out loud. Anytime you and I decide to follow God, it will cost you something. If you're here for the cruise, you're on the wrong boat. Anytime you and I decide by by faith to step out and follow Jesus, it will always cost you and me something. This thing, this thing of following God is going to be the hardest thing you and I ever do. It will cost us friends. It will cost us money. It will cost us relatives who don't understand the decisions we've made. It may cost us children who look at us and say, Dad, you're too strict. Mom, you don't understand. But I'm just simply telling you, count the cost. Because it always costs to follow Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In the month of Nisan... In the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was brought before him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad And when you're not even sick, when you're not even ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. Get the next line. I was very much afraid. I knew, I knew my life was hanging in the balance. I was risking life and death for a wall back in Jerusalem. That frankly, by most people's account, wasn't even my business. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. And why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it that you want? And then look at his response. Then I prayed. Okay, because he hadn't already, he'd already been praying. But you ever had that moment you go, oh my God, okay, okay, okay. If I, if I say one more thing, I could really get myself in trouble. Dear Jesus, dear Jesus, dear Jesus. You ever done that moment? And that's exactly where Nehemiah is. He's walked right up to the edge. He's right there. And he's going, oh, dear Jesus, dear Jesus, dear Jesus. I'm getting ready to leap off. And he says, I did that quick 10-second prayer thing. And he says, uh, I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, in Israel, where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. And I'm just going to tell you, it'll cost. It'll cost if you and I decide to love the things that God loves. If you and I decide to look at a moment and say, someone ought to do something, the someone's going to be me, the someone's going to be you. And it'll cost and it'll stretch us. And so let's just talk. We haven't said too much about money yet. Let's just talk for a few seconds before we wrap it up. What's it going to cost? Remember all the buildings we talked about last week? We talked about knocking out walls and adding seats and redoing and putting some new buildings up. So the price tag is absolutely free. No. Uh, $27 million to do the project that we're talking about. And some of you are going, what? It's not that bad. We, we've got to raise nine. We've got to raise a down payment together. 
The rest of it will carry. So we got to raise nine. And here's the deal. A church ought to be able to raise one and a half times whatever their annual income is. Last year, you and I brought in 6.7. We should be able to easily be able to raise 10. We're going to try for nine. We ought to be able to do this, guys. It is absolutely within reach for you and I to get there, okay, as we go to build. Now, some of the question, one of the questions that somebody uh, has been asking is simply this. Hey, Lynn, why don't we just add a whole bunch of more services? Maybe we just, you know, add and add and add and add services. You know, we could do Saturday services. That's a great question. Here's my answer. Get thee behind me, Satan. Okay? So let me, let me tell you, let me, let me, let me tell you, let me, I'm teasing, but let me, let me tell you why this is not a good answer for us. It's not a good answer for anybody. Lots and lots and lots of churches have already done this. But what's happening in the cycle is now they're coming back and realizing the outcome of making that decision. And I'm telling you, it is filled with regret. So let me give you a couple reasons why you and I do not want to make the mistake that others have already made. See, the the height of wisdom is seeing others' mistakes and avoiding doing them ourselves. So here's what's happening as they do uh, multiple services. Number one is this. That it absolutely puts a horrible strain on manpower. Okay? So the first part is you have your own staff, and you and I have got lots of 30-year-olds on staff, which means they have children. And now you're going to ask our staff to serve on Saturday nights, and then we're going to ask them to serve all day on Sunday. Do you realize if we choose to do that, we will have to say to our staff, because their children are in school during the week, if you want to spend one day with your own children, it has to be a vacation day which I'm just going to tell you is absolutely against everything that we believe and stand for. But further than that is simply this. When you begin to add all those other services, we need lots of volunteers at that point. We need tons and tons. Who's going to run all those other services that we do as we keep stacking services? Because here's the deal. Guess who's going to start attending those services? Mature Christians, baby Christians. Baby Christians. It's not that sneaky. Baby Christians. So guess who gets to serve? You. And if you're telling me today that you've got so much extra time and, you, and you've got a lot of margin in your life and you haven't been serving enough and you were waiting for a new opportunity to serve, if you will stand up and head right now to the lobby and sign up, we will do that. But in the meantime, it's going to be all of us carrying the load of serving to make those other services go because the new folk won't. The second thing is simply this, that they're finding that it's un. It's unmanageable to continue to do those services. You can't, you can't keep them going. And if you watch church after church after church that's done Saturday night and multiple services all sorts of times, here's the trend. Here's what's happening. You can't keep your preaching staff doing six and seven services every single Sunday. So here's what they've gone to. And this is the trend going on all over the valley right now. The senior pastor preaches at Saturday night. Guess why he preaches at Saturday night? Because after 10 years, Saturday night still hasn't filled up. After 10 years. And so they put the senior pastor speaking on Saturday night, hoping that that will force people to leave Sunday and start attending Saturday night. Guess which services are not live anymore? Sunday morning. Because he can't preach all those services. And so now their Sunday morning services have all become video venue. And if you want to turn this congregation, if you want to turn this site into a video venue, then let's just keep adding services till we can't keep up and manage it anymore. And until all I do is speak on Saturday night. 
and then everybody else, you can all come and watch video on Sunday morning. And if you don't think that's the answer, go ask CCV, Christ Church of the Valley, what they're doing right now. You do not see Don Wilson on Sunday morning. Go ask Sun Valley what they're doing right now because of their Saturday night services. And they find after a while it's absolutely unmanageable. The last one is this, and this is the kicker for me. You ready? It's more expensive to do Saturday night than it is to build the building. It's more expensive because, you ready for this? When you start adding multiple services, you start having to add staff. And guys, I'm just telling you, people are expensive. For some reason, they want to eat. And they have mortgages and they have car payments. And it is darn expensive to add personnel. And what you figure out is real quickly, adding those services adds to personnel. And your personnel budget actually goes up bigger than the building payment would. And if you go back to every single one, every single one of those churches that have started more and more services, have gone to Saturday night and said, let's pull the clock back. Let's make the decision all over again. Saturday night services... Build a building. And every one of those congregations, without hesitation, would say, build the building. You and I don't have to make the mistakes that others have made to learn the lesson. And I'm just telling you, it makes no sense to keep adding services to our services. It makes sense to make the room bigger so we can fit everybody in two or three. Okay? So, we told you, $27 We're going to try to raise nine. I know that sounds kind of big. Let let me give a short little history lesson real quick. We've already done this twice. Remember, we built the buildings that are over there. So let's put the chart up on the screen. When we built those original buildings over there, it was $3.2 million. That's how much it cost to buy the land, build the buildings. At the time we decided to make that decision, there were 435 people in attendance at Cornerstone. Now let me tell you how you get to 435. You count every man, every woman, every boy, every child, and every rodent that showed up on Sunday. That's 435. And when we made that decision, the decision was to go in debt. You ready? $7,356 per man, woman, boy, and child in the church, which means nine-month-olds were $7,356 in debt. Okay? That's what that decision was. When we built this auditorium... $15 million project. At the time we made that decision, we were running about $1,400, which means the debt we were getting ready to carry was $10,714 for every man, every woman, every boy, every child here at church. You and I right now are talking about doing $27 million. We currently run about $5,800 every Sunday, which means the debt load that you and I are thinking about taking. You ready? $4,000. 655. And guys, I'm just going to tell you, there's nothing about this that ought to cause any fear or trepidation. We've already done this twice, and we've already done it bigger than this. Now, I'm not going to say it's going to be easy. I'm not saying that. It's still going to take sacrifice on our part to get that $9 million raised. We're going to come with serious pledges two weeks from now and drop them off and pick up our bricks. I'm just telling you, we've already done something bigger than this twice. And guys, you want to hear something that's even cooler than that? You ready for this? We are building at the best possible time ever right now. This couldn't... You know why? You want to know why this is like the best possible time ever to build a building? Because we've been in a recession. No, 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 no. I know. 
This may be the providence of God for us. Because guys, 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 guess what happens during a recession? Builders get hungry to have projects because it's a recession. So guess what happens to builders' prices? Bankers have money to loan and nobody's borrowing their money. So guess what happens to interest rates? And you and I are sitting in a moment that in, guys, in your lifetime, you have never seen interest rates this low. And if you and I can strike now while building costs are down, while interest rates are lower, you and I are going to have the opportunity. Think about this. We're going to extend the, you know, the mortgage out a little bit, but we're going to get rid of some higher interest rates. We're going to get it in at lower. We're going to be able to build all the buildings that we're talking about, expand the buildings that we already have. And when we are done, we will barely change the payment. Is that crazy? That's crazy. I mean, guys, think about this for think about this for a second. If you left today and went to a car dealership and said, "Hey, I'm thinking about trading my car. It's way too small. It doesn't carry all my kids. It won't hold all of us. What do you got that's bigger and better and brighter and shinier?" And they pull out this car. It's twice the size of the car you've got. It's got all the features you need. And he says, "Hey, we got a one day deal. We will sell you this car." We will take your car, and instead of trading it in, we will repair and fix that car. You get to take both cars home, and oh, by the way, it's the same payment you've already got. I'm buying a car. I'm uh, Count me in, dude. I mean, I'm, I'm in. And you realize that's the moment we sit in. We're going to be able to expand and repair all the buildings we have, build the new buildings, walk away with the same car payment. Dude, I am praying the recession lasts about another 14 months until we lock the loan. You and I may be sitting at the best possible moment to move forward right now. So here's what I'm asking. Would you pray? Would you pray with me for the next 14 days? Every day and say, God, what should I do? Now, here, here's what I'm going to say out loud. We've already gone to your leaders. We held banquets and we held dinners. And we went to them and here's what we said to them. We want you to lead. We want you to lead with such boldness and such courage that the rest of the church will take heart when they see your example. And we said to your leaders, we're asking you to give 5% of your income above what you currently give for the next 36 months. We need your best one-time gift. And then for 36 months, we need you to give 5% of your income above what you currently give. So if you give nothing as a leader, then then you need to start giving 5%. If you already tithe, you already give 10%, we're asking you to give 15. We're asking you to give 5% above what you currently give so that the rest of the church will see your courage and boldness and be willing to follow. That's the challenge we put out to your leaders. Here's what I'm going to ask you to pray about. Would you pray about 3%? Would you pray about giving 3% above what you currently give? And I know for some of us, you you don't give much at all. So 3% would all be new to you. But what a cool moment. Because my guess is that most of us that don't give and don't tithe right now, we've been saying someday, wouldn't this be a great first step in the right direction? For some of us in the room and you're already giving and yeah, it's 3%. 
would you pray about 3% above what you already give? And then in two weeks, on the 13th, we're going to all bring our filled out pledge cards. We're going to walk down this aisle and we're going to exchange that card for a brick. And we're going to bring it over here so that our family name can be printed on it. And we're going to build a legacy, not just a wall. We're going to build a legacy as a church. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we just simply stand in the moment. And the reality is, God, we could, we could, we could be really selfish right now. We could say, hey, what's in it for me? I, my kids have already got a class. I've already got a purple chair to sit in. God, help us to be Nehemiahs. Help us to love what you love. Help our hearts to ache for the people who aren't in the room yet, for our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers and the, the teachers that teach our children. Help us to love what you love. Help us to care that our best maturity class right now is being used for overflow. And help us to say, we got to fix that. And that we got to get even more serious about growing up young Christians into being fully devoted followers of Jesus. We will grow up so that when people brush into the people of Cornerstone, they brush against Jesus. God, help us to love what you love. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.